The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Dr. Rachel Turow, is an author, professor, She holds a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Oregon. She's written numerous books, including Mindfulness Skills for Trauma and PTSD, Practices for Recovery and Resilience, and her newest book, The Self-Talk Workout, Six Science-Backed Strategies to Dissolve Self-Criticism and Transform the Voice in Your Head. An excerpt from the book appears in the August-September issue of Spirituality and Health Magazine. So, Rachel Turow, welcome to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you. I have an advanced copy of the book. It was really interesting. And I, I, I haven't done the exercises. What I've basically done when I hear that that critic in my head, I, I just hit myself with the book in the head. <laughs> <laughs> that is one way to handle it. Yeah, that's that's like maybe the, you know, one of the, so you, you give us six science back strategies. If they don't work out for you, just hit yourself in the head with the book. That's a seventh and it's not scientific, but, you, you know, it helps me anyway. You know, the, one of the key terms, maybe the key term, and certainly the focus of the book is self-talk itself. So let's start with that. Define self-talk for us. Sure. So... When I use the term self-talk, I mean, how are you relating to yourself, either with words or just your general sentiment? Are you treating yourself in a kind way? Are you being critical? Are you looking for flaws and trying to improve yourself all the time? Some people find that they have sort of a constant inner monologue, whereas other people report that they don't kind of hear words inside their heads or they don't relate to themselves using full phrases. So whether it's with words or with not, without words, the manner that you're relating to yourself. So, and I know I'm wrong, but it sounds like a, like the self is split in half. I mean, I've got the self and then I've got the critic that's criticizing myself, but the critic is also myself, right? That's a really interesting perspective. It's true. I, mean, I would say that there we all have these different parts of ourselves that sort of interact with each other, but I think that they're all part of us. There's the part that's being perhaps criticized, 
And then there's the criticizer, which might have the goal of reprimanding you, but might also be trying to keep you safe, trying to improve your life in some way, and perhaps thinks that this constant criticism could help. Are you familiar with psychosynthesis? I am not. Okay, so I, I don't mean to put you, you know, catch you on something, but th- it reminded me of that. And, and this is what I know about it. I think the founder is a guy named Masagioli. And this is what I remember from whatever I read from psychosynthesis is he identified a number of subpersonalities, like the negative voice, the critic. And he said, guess what you said? They're all part of you. And the way he handles them, which is, sounds maybe a little corny, but it, it was interesting. You know, he says, you know, be the executive function, be the, the, the chief executive officer of yourself and call all these other voices together. And if you allow, if you allow them to speak, you'll notice that they are on your side, just the way you said that the critic This negative self-talk may not be simply a dunning thing. It may be maybe an an ineffective way of getting you to do better. And it also may be something, watch out. You know, this is, don't do this because something bad's going to happen. I I think, and, and I don't, this is a question to your own experience, certainly, but I think a lot of people look at their inner critic and it's their enemy. And, but that's not what you're saying, I don't think. I think it, is slightly more complicated than that. I would understand, right, why people could think of it that way because the critical voices can be so painful. They can really cause a lot of pain. And it's unpleasant to have your life where part of your mind is criticizing yourself all day. It's it's upsetting. So I do think that there's a reason that There are so many portrayals of that critic out there that say basically silence your inner critic for good or taming your gremlin is another book on the topic where the inner critic is looked at as this problem. And it is a problem for a lot of people, but I think there are ways to work with it. Yeah. And your book, your book offers very, I mean, I, I can't say I'm an expert having just read the book once, but it offers really it seems to me effective strategies for for dealing with this this character in your head. I mean, mine is my father, right? I mean, I'm not paying for this this session, so I don't want you to do any <laughs> psychoanalysis here. But but it's clear to me that my my negative self talk comes from my my father. I catch myself saying things that I've heard him say about me, you know, for forever. Now my my dad's been dead for years, and that didn't silence the critic it maybe made the critic a little louder because now the critic didn't have my actual father just to, to add his voice to the mix. But I came to the, not a hundred percent about what I'm going to say, but I came to the understanding, as you just said, that my dad and the voice of my dad in my head are both, they're really on my side, but they're not. And this is the question I want to bring up next. They're not cheerleaders. So you talk about the difference between self-talk and self-esteem. I'm thinking of cheerleaders as, you know, just trying to build yourself, your self-esteem. But you're dealing with something much deeper than that. So tell us the difference between self-talk and self-esteem. I think that it's an important distinction because when people use that phrase, oh, practice positive self-talk, I think it's quite vague. 
it's unclear what that means. Does that mean telling myself how wonderful I am or convincing myself that everything is going to go perfectly from now on if I just only think about it correctly? And I really don't mean either of those things. So self-talk is about how you relate to yourself. And that might include criticism, but it might also include friendship or encouragement. Whereas self-esteem has this quality of judgment of, okay, if I want high self-esteem, that means that I have to think about how wonderful I am often at the expense of others. And it's this notion of comparing myself to others or measuring my worth. And if you want positive self-esteem, that means measuring it in a positive way. But it turns out that it's a really dangerous, it's a dangerous foundation to have as your basis for well-being because circumstances can change. We all make mistakes, we all fail, and we're not better than everybody else in every aspect of our lives, certainly not. So if your feeling of self-worth or adequacy is predicated on having this high self-esteem, which involves all these comparisons, it's a really unstable foundation. Whereas healthy self-talk, if you're being kind, encouraging, and friendly, even when you have failure, even when things don't go very well, that's a much more robust way of relating to yourself. It doesn't depend on outcomes and it doesn't compare, doesn't depend on comparing yourself with others. So I think that's really important. It doesn't depend on outcomes or comparison. And I think that one of the problems, and I think you just said this with self-esteem is, if you don't live up to the hype, then the negative self-talk is just reinforced. I told you you couldn't do that, you know, because you'll never live up to the, the hype of your, your self-esteem voice. And then comparison, I mean, I think it's natural. It's not, I, I don't think there's anything intrinsically bad about comparing myself if the comparison is motivating in a, in a healthy, motivating way. But self-talk is, it's, I think, I think the word talk, when I first started reading, I think the word talk threw me because you're really talking about, and you've said it, the way you relate to yourself, which is, which is much more complex and more nuanced than just, like you said, affirmations. You know, I'm, I'm smart and I'm clever and people love me. And, you know, just getting up in the morning that I can't remember the character's name, Smiley on, on, uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Stuart smiling on, on Saturday Night Live. I forget the catchphrase, but you know, and I'm worth it. That that kind of thing. I mean, they were making fun of of self affirmations, but you're not talking about self affirmations. You're talking about actually the way you you write about it in the book. You're really talking about a form of mindfulness. And I know mindfulness was your 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 first book. I think it was your first book, Mindfulness Skills for Trauma and PTSD. How is this, how is self-talk a a form of mindfulness? Self-talk involves developing awareness for how you're relating to yourself. And in fact, that's some of the work of mindfulness meditation. When I teach mindfulness meditation, the first obstacle that people often encounter if they're beginners is this terrible self-judgment. I'm bad at meditating. It's not going well. I'm distracted. I can't clear my mind like I'm supposed to. And there's so much self-criticism that often happens for beginning meditators. And whereas people see that as an obstacle, it's actually a wonderful learning opportunity because you're really seeing the self-talk in action right there is how you're relating to yourself. When you're not distracted, you're not looking at your phone, you're just 
listening to what's happening in your mind. And it's really valuable information. So if you can tolerate those moments of actually feeling, how am I relating to yourself, myself right now? Oh, I'm criticizing myself. I'm criticizing how my mind is going right now. That's really important information. And then gradually, if you can notice that without freaking out about it, oh my gosh, you know, I'm horrible at meditation or I, I can't believe I'm so mean to myself. I have this terrible critic. If you can start to notice, okay, I'm listening. What am I noticing? Not how terrible is it, but just what am I noticing right now? Then eventually it does seem to calm down after a while. If you can notice it in a gentle way, oh, this is how I'm relating to myself. And then maybe playfully experiment with, well, what happens if I relate to myself in a different way? What happens instead of being so upset that I lost my focus? I focus on instead on how gently can I return my focus? Hmm. How much of a friend can I be? How kind can I be in that moment where I've lost my focus and I'm trying to return it? So the exercise becomes entirely different. So I'm curious about how this plays out when you're writing. This, this is your, is this your second? I know it's at least your second book. That's right. So let me, let me tell you what happens to me. And I'm working on my 37th, I think. So I get to a point in the book where the voice in my head says, this is, well, I can't actually say what it says. It's not very nice, (laughs) but this is crap. (laughs) This is absolute crap. You'll never write another decent book. And, you know, it's it's that whole, that whole kind of thing. And my response now, I imagine, though I can't remember, you know, decades and decades ago when I was first starting out as a writer, that voice was probably somewhat debilitating. But now my attitude is, thank you for reminding me that I could do better. And this, you know, and we both know, talking to that that inner critic, you, you know, we both know this is part of the process. I write crap and then I rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it until it's no longer crap. <laughs> and that's that's my writing process. So thanks for noticing, but let's not, don't get in the way I have you know, I'm still working on the, you know, in this process. So when you're, when you're working on a book or something else, and you can broaden it to other things that people do, do you find the same thing? The negative voice comes? How do you deal with the potentially debilitating aspect of that? Well, this one was challenging and it was so funny and even hypocritical because I'm writing a book about self-criticism and healthy self-talk. So if I'm looking at what I'm writing and criticizing it, you know, can I do that in a kind way, in a healthy way? And this process was really bizarre because I had already had the agreement to write the book. It was all set up. And then there was a pandemic and I had three small kids at home trying to homeschool and take care of a baby. And writing was really almost impossible. And so some of my first drafts of some of the chapters, I was not pleased with them. But I was blessed with a really wonderful patient editor who was very kind and not critical. But I read some of the drafts and I said to myself, I can do a better draft. And it wasn't so pleasant to feel like what I'd written wasn't exactly what I wanted. But I also had this opportunity to give myself a lot of compassion. Okay, I'm writing three sentences at a time, you know, in between taking care of the kids (laughs) and, you know, never seeing another person. This is not a normal writing situation where you're like, ah, and you have a few hours to gather your thoughts. I didn't have that for a year. So 
it was a big challenge, but right now I I'm pleased with the book and I don't think it's perfect. If I could, you know, have another year or two with it, maybe it would be to a higher writing standard, but that's okay. I think that it gets the message across. There are parts that I'm more proud of than others, but overall writing is a really pleasurable experience. So I'm mostly thankful to have had a project that really sustained me over the past couple of years in addition to all of the childcare that I was doing. So I hope people heard what you just said because... I mean, you said, you know, it's not perfect. There is no perfect in this kind of thing, right? I mean, I, I, I don't go back and reread my books unless I have to give a talk on them. But whenever I do reread parts of a book, I go, oh, no, that you could have done that a lot better. But at the time, I couldn't. That was my best work at the, at the moment I was writing it. And, and you have to be, you have to put, well, I mean, it's cliche to say, you know, don't let, the the good be the enemy of the great or something like that or the great be the enemy of the good got it backwards you know so so and it's not settling it's realizing this is the best i can do at this moment and it'll still be a value to people who read it and 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 so <clears throat> so you don't stop you keep you keep you know plugging away at it and i think people need to hear that i know a lot of creative people i don't want to speak for them but it seems to me that whose creativity is easily blocked by that inner critic because it doesn't it's they they have something in their head that's better though unarticulated in their head they have something in their head that's better than what comes out on the page or the canvas or the piano or guitar and they know what they've got in the real world is not really what they're hearing or seeing in their head and they just get so flummoxed by that that they don't work with what they've actually got in front of them. They just say, well, forget it then. And, and that's not what you're saying. So one of the things that you offer, because let's get to the, some of the practices. We won't go to all six. The, the first practice you offer is a kind of mantra. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. So, I mean, I'm just going to read it to you just to remind you what it is, and then you can tell us about it. But inhale my love, exhale my love. You call it a radical self-talk reset, a self-talk reset. So so what is that? T- tell us about that mantra, why that one, where that came from, or why you, you came up with that, and how does it reset our self-talk? I came up with that mantra after a yoga class where the teacher encouraged us to keep inhaling and exhaling in this loving and caring way. And I like it because it's short. It it is much shorter than sitting down to meditate for 10 or 20 minutes. And it has an embodied component. So in addition to trying to relate to yourself as a friend in your mind, you're also inviting this connection with your body. Remembering to inhale and exhale using the word friend or love or your name, if you say it in a kind way, just inhale my friend, 
exhale, my friend. And my students have enjoyed this one because it's so brief. You don't need a lot of time and you can do it while you're doing other things. If you're in a caregiving role, you can get some of these rounds of inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend in. And it offers this reset because this judgy mind and judgy world that we live in can be very pervasive. And as you said, with your dad, we absorb the opinions and, you know, superego from other people. It can govern our thinking. It can be very strong. So sometimes we do need that reset button. And in that moment that you say, inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend, or inhale, my love, exhale, my love, there's no other requirement. There's no judgment for being good or not good or mediocre. It's just about being okay to breathe in this moment, that that's enough and that you are enough in this moment. It's often a very different way of relating to yourself than people are used to. I am a huge fan of mantra or mantram. And we talked in the very beginning, you know, you mentioned, you know, some people say you have to silence the critic, you know, just shut it up. My experience with mantra practice, and, and I do mantra practice every day in, in two different traditions, Jewish and, and Hindu. And I find that the mantra, if you're really focused, there isn't any room for the critic because you can't do the mantra wrong, right? You, you can't, I mean, all you're doing is breathing and saying, you know, inhale, exhale. So it, I don't want to say it erases the critic, but it does give you a respite from that, that dunning voice. There's something very powerful about mantra. Do you, do you find the same thing? I mean, do you do this daily or yes, throughout the I, day? I love it. I love to have mantras as well. And I agree. I think that the critical voice can be so powerful. And when you think about it, most people develop their critics unintentionally over years and decades and reinforce them that having an alternative set of words that you already know what those words are because the other words are the default that will just slide in if you let them having those words that you've chosen with, you know, your best intentions, because it's the direction in which you want to grow. I think it's really beautiful to set those up and to practice them and to give them power over, you know, days, weeks, months, years. So I really enjoy it. I, you know, another kind of mantra that I teach is the loving kindness meditation. So either traditional phrases or ones that are right for you, such as, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I live with ease. And I, it's really curious, I teach a lot of college students, there's some resistance at first because that can feel strange or mushy or not like them, even if they pick the phrases that are most resonant for them. But then they often describe a shift where at first they don't really trust that it will do anything, but then they're surprised that repeating those positive wishes of goodwill towards themselves or towards others actually does change how they're relating to themselves or other people or the world. Do you get a sense that it also changes your physiology? I mean, my, my experience is when the negative voice is railing, if I look at it and you know, not, not try to replace it with, with something else, but if I'm just observing it, I notice that my, my breathing is a little shallower, my, my, I'm holding my body more tightly. But as soon as I go to the mantra, and I, you know, I have the ones I have, but it's the same thing would happen if 
you know, may, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, that, you know, the, the meta or loving kindness practice things, regardless of the wording, I find that it softens my breathing, no, softens my body and slows my breathing, makes it more deep and rhythmic. And that, it's, it's like a feedback loop. So you're changing what you're saying. So it's, in, it's a psychological thing. It's also impacting you physiologically. And then the change, the physical change impacts the mental change. And the mental change continues to impact the physical. And you get this virtuous circle of, uh, I don't know, maybe it's too strong to say healing, but you get this, this radical change in the way you are with yourself and the way you are in the world. Is that, is that your experience also? It is. I think that it can be very powerful. And I really love that sort of virtuous cycle of feeling better in your mind. So your body feels a little more relaxed and less stressed, and then your mind feels better and then your body feels better. So I think that can be really lovely. And then as a scientist, I'm just thrilled that there's so much great research out there now about, um, you know, intentional breathing exercises and the positive effects that they can have on the body and on health, including meditation and those mantra, the loving kindness or other types of mantra meditation. Those are a form of concentration meditation. So there's great research too on the benefits of those practices. Yeah. Science backs up what, well, I was going to say science backs up what mystics have known for millennia. Yes. Uh, but that's not false. I mean, that's just a little hokey way to put it. And, and so I'm hoping if you're listening to this, that you'll absolutely try the, her first, you know, Rachel's first practice of this mantra practice. You'll see the change that it makes and it'll encourage you to go ahead and take a look at the other five. We only have a couple of minutes left and I wanted to take this out of the realm of the individual. You know, we've been talking about you know, healing ourselves and, and all of that. But I want to know what you think about, given the, I mean, the tone and the tenor, the terror of our time with the pandemic, and you wrote this during the pandemic and the, the wars that are going around the planet and civil rights and the January 6th hearings, all this stuff that's happening, that the, the, it's like the country, the United States has this giant critical voice you know, coming from the right and the left, you know, just, just saying you're terrible, you're terrible, you're terrible. How do you imagine self-talk could make a difference in the larger world in which we live? I think that there are a couple of ways, at least, that self-talk can make a difference. First of all, if our self-talk is really critical, it's just paralyzing. And, you know, self-criticism wasn't a subset of mental health issues, you know, in the framework that I learned about in graduate school, right? We learned depression, anxiety, et cetera. But it was really after sitting with many patients and students that I really got the sense that the self-criticism is this layer on top that makes all problems worse, makes it harder to recover from trauma. And it just takes up a lot of space. So if there's any way to soften the critical voice there's more energy for making the world better, making your life better, and for feeling better. So that self-criticism, getting it to soften, can provide more energy. I also think that one of the exercises that I have is called Spot the Success. And in this 
climate right now, I think it's so hard to feel that any of our actions can make a difference. And then it's easy to discount them. Well, okay, I didn't do enough today. So, you know, what can I really do or really get discouraged about the state of the world? And we often ignore all of the positive things that we do to help our life, to help somebody else's life or to make the world better. It's easy to discount them. So with Spot the Success, the idea is to list 10 things that you've done today that have helped your life, someone else's life or the world, and no item is too small. So maybe you texted a friend or you made a meal for a family member. And the idea is to, again, mindfully tune in that you actually are doing important actions that are aligned with your values. And then tuning in in that mindful way tends to promote motivation and energy so that you actually do more actions that are aligned with your values. So it's another short practice that people seem to really enjoy and feel some benefit from. Most of the practices in the book are really, I mean, they're, they're graspable and doable. And, you know, I, I think you've really done us a favor with, with, your, with your newest book. We've been talking with Rachel Turo. She's the author of The Self-Talk Workout, Six science-backed strategies to dissolve self-criticism and transform the voice in your head. You can learn more about her work at rachelturo.com. And you can read an excerpt from the book in the August-September issue of Spirituality and Health magazine, which will be our next issue. Rachel, thank you so much for talking with us on the Spirituality and Health podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by the one and only Ezra Baker Trupiano. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And if you are not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health Magazine, please become one at spiritualityhealth.com. Dr. Stephen Farber, and I am an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.